cinephile. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? The great Billy Bob Thornton, one of my favorite actors. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Cinephile. Virtuoso filmmaking by Scorsese. It's some of the best work he's done. The most famous person that follows me on Twitter, Will Arnett, <laughs> is in the house. Ego Mortensen, a tremendous story about working with Al Pacino on Carlito's Way. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. I would love to be delusional and think people actually tune in just to hear my thoughts. Like last podcast, wanted to hear what I thought about Silence or wanted to hear my top 10 movies of 2016, which I'm about to unveil. But I understand it's all about the guests. So in that vein, a special shout out to our talent office here at ESPN, particularly Kareem White who had to move hell or high water to get Mark Wahlberg in. As uh, my producer and friend Rob Lemley texted me, did you interview Mark Wahlberg from a submarine? Close. I was in Clemson, South Carolina. But big, big time that, that Kareem made time for us. Wahlberg apparently last minute wanted to come to ESPN. Originally we were rebuffed, had to push back, able to make it happen. Dan was producing here. I thought Wahlberg was excellent. I always go back and listen to the interviews afterwards. I thought he was very engaging. I thought he answered all of uh, my questions well. Gave us a Scorsese story right out of the gate. He could have just been like, oh, I don't want to get in there. But he's like, yeah, well, I told him to cut my hair. I'm like, I'm not cutting my hair. It took me eight hours to do this. Dan, you can verify he was vacillating between levels of interest and disinterest. Absolutely. And I agree with you 100%. I listened back too. I thought the interview sounded amazing. But as I'm staring at him from eight feet away, at times very disinterested, <laughs> other times very engaged. Can you clarify when you think he was interested and perhaps when he wasn't as interested? I think I edited out one of the answers where he was completely disinterested, <laughs> so I can't remember too many of you the know specifics. What it was? But. I asked him about what about making a sequel to The Departed or a prequel, and he goes, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We'll figure it out. I go, Bill Monahan, though, the writer, he said, I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out. That, that was when I knew we should just go ahead. And the headphones were hardly on his ears. It was, I, I don't know. But I thought you sounded fine. Tell whoever that was. Yeah, Lem was know, all over. Did you know, phone to studio, you know. Yeah. Tell I, them to worry about TV. We got, the, <laughs> we got the audio thing figured out over here, okay? I agree. I agree. Rick Passmore sitting in, by the way. We have a maximum of two uh, episodes you can sit in for. So I don't want to get the ideas around here, but Passmore is here along for the ride. He's here ostensibly because he saw silence. So if you see silence, you're allowed to come to my podcast anytime you want, because not many people did, judging by the box office returns that I'm looking at right now and I'm very depressed about. Um, so yeah, thanks to the talent bookers. Thanks to goldderby.com. I mean, I get these tweets, people asking, hey, who do you think is win best actor? Real simple. Go to goldderby.com, experts picks. I have all of my picks there. Okay. Even best live action short is on there. Okay. So all of the picks are there. Chris Beecham is great. He's the managing editor at Gold Derby. I was on their website this past Friday. We did a 30 to 40 minute video chat. And he was great. He really picked up my spirits because I said, listen, the, the DGA was just announced, Director's Guild Award. Now, the three locks um, are Damien Chazelle for La La Land, who's going to win, Barry Jenkins for Moonlight, Kenneth Lonergan for Manchester by the Sea. Fourth is now Denis Villeneuve, the Canadian director of Arrival. He's in. So the fifth, I'm like, it's got to be Marty. And then the DGA, who I have no time for, I have complete contempt, gave the fifth slot to Garth Jones, director of Lion, which I will review today. It's a very good movie, but outrageous that Garth Davis is in there. So Chris talked me off the ledge. He said, listen, the DGA is not, it's not like the SAG. Like if you're guessing your Oscar picks and you go, all right, the SAG best actors, Denzel for Fences, then we got a race here. Then it's not necessarily going to be Casey Affleck because the, the Actors Guild for the Screen Actors Guild is a huge branch of them, the Academy. The DGA, as Chris explained to me, because not Director's Guild, that's not necessarily going to be a good predictor. And he goes, listen, Everybody in Hollywood knows Marty took 28 years to make this movie. Garth Jones, I don't think, is going to get nominated ahead of him. Even though the film has not done well with the box office, 84% critics-wise on Rotten Tomatoes, they all know. Goes, I'll give you the example. He goes, Last Temptation of Christ got zero love, zero nominations, yet Scorsese was still nominated for Best Director. So he goes, his colleagues all recognize when he makes a passion project. I'm like, all right, Marty, we'll throw you a bone. Silence probably now is not going to get nominated for Best Picture. But Chris told me he still thinks Marty will get nominated for Best Director, which did did buoy my hopes. They love Thelma Schoonmaker, the longtime editor of Marty. He goes, she'll get nominated. It looks great. Rodrigo Prieto will get nominated for cinematography. And they love uh, Dante Ferretti, the production designer. So he, Chris said to me, listen, Silence probably get about five nominations. Don't don't hang yourself just yet. But if you want to check out GoldDerby.com, my interview with Chris, I talked about La La Land, why I think it's going to be a juggernaut, uh, and also our thoughts. I said to Chris, I wish I got to watch foreign films. People think I get screeners. I just ran into somebody here who goes, oh, how many screeners? I don't get any screeners. I told the story. I drive to New York to watch Silence. Trust me, if I had screeners, I'd see everything. I would I would see like... 
I, I would see every documentary short subject out there. So I said to Chris, tell me about these foreign films. We don't get any foreign films in Central Connecticut. And I'm dying to see Tony Erdman, which is apparently going to win, or The Salesman, which is this Iranian film, which I would love to see because it's Oscar Farhadi, who also did A Separation, which was Roger Ebert's best picture of the year a few years ago, which is an unbelievable movie. I've seen A Separation three times, and it's not playing here. So he said, well, Tony Erdman, if you love German comedy, you'll love that. I said, I don't think I have a reference point of German comedy. He goes, exactly. I said, but it's the favorite to win best foreign film. He goes, well, a lot of people apparently love German comedies. In Los Angeles. So hang on a second here. So as you mentioned, all your picks are on goldderby.com. Yeah. How many of the picks did you make in an honest moment here without actually seeing the films? Oh, well, listen, of all the major categories, I've seen them all, right? Picture, director, actors, et cetera. But when it gets to like live action short, documentaries, that stuff I haven't seen a lot of. Well, in fairness, and I don't want, I don't mean to call you out here, but you had yeah. picked Natalie Portman for Jackie prior to seeing Jackie. Yeah. And now that I've seen it, by the way, I'll give you my review of that movie coming up. What I'm praying she doesn't win, and I'm going to change my pick on oh, Goldberg.com. Oh, oh, so that's the that, process of work. Well, that's part of, part of what Chris and I were talking about, because I said, listen, people have to understand on the site, my picks is not who I want to see win. This is who I'm predicting will win. He goes, exactly. He said, if it was just our own selections, trust me, like I would have uh, you know various different selections. He, in fact, this this is the popular Goldberg. This blew me away. Chris told me this. You can watch the video chat. Like I said, it's on the site. Because I said, how, what's the appeal of this now? Because I said, I had one, I had a publicist with Hacksaw Ridge email me and go, hey, uh, have you seen Hacksaw Ridge? We can send you the screener. I said, no, I saw it. I enjoyed it. That was very good. I, I gave it a positive review. And sorry, right, well, p- please keep that in mind with Gold Derby. I'm like, oh, so people are paying attention to my picks here. And Chris goes, a big name actress. I'll tell you guys afterwards off air who it is. But he said, a big name actress. I'll, I'll give the hint. She's going to get nominated for best actress. That's all I can tell you. Saw Chris. Is it Amy Adams? <laughs> so, so I can't say yes or no. Saw Chris on the on the red carpet, and he was. Is just it like, Nicole Kidman? <laughs> he goes, "Hi, I'm." It's not Nicole Kidman. He said, "Hi, I'm I'm Chris Beecham." With so it's Amy Adams. He said, "I'm Chris Beecham with GoldenBird.com." She goes, well, "I know who you are. You had me third on the Best Actress race, and then you had me fifth last week." And, and Chris was blown away. It's one thing to say, "Hey, I'm with GoldenBird.com." Okay, like when I meet somebody. Hey, I'm with ESPN. Okay, great. I've heard of ESPN. But for her to actually, well, I know who you are, Chris. You actually changed my selection. And I think he told me two years ago there was another actress. It's on the video chat, but I, I, he actually said the name with that one. But she, uh, Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson said, oh, I know who you are. You had me fourth, and now you have me out of the rank. Like, oh, my God. Sarah Paulson is locked into goldderby.com. So very cool stuff there from Chris. Big news is uh, we got more shirts to give away. Thanks to Stu Gatz, Mike Ryan, the rest of the Army from the Levitard Show. We sent them shirts just to thank them because they had me on to talk Canada baseball and movies. Uh, so we sent the shirts, and then they're a really nice gesture. They said, well, we're all wearing them today except for Levitard. Um, so now people are really asking, how do we get these shirts? So Stanzik has dialed up another quiz. First 10 responses, we'll get a shirt. You get either large or extra large. Beautiful white cinephile shirt. Here's the quiz. What do you got? All right, it's breaking news on Cinephile as well. Where you will tweet these in, I'm surprised you didn't leave this. I'm kind of disappointed in you. We we are on Twitter as Cinephile now. It's at Cinephile ESPN. Some people are a little confused on how to spell it, even you know some people that theoretically work with us. Yeah. Cinephile is spelled with a P. So it's C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E. And I saw our boss, Pete Jensen, he goes, some people are going the other way. And I said, what? Because your point, they go F-I-L-E. Goes, right. No, they're going like S-H. Like, I go, Cinephile? Like, that's, that doesn't exist. I don't know what's happening here. But at Cinephile ESPN is where you'll tweet your responses. Right. Question one, there's eight questions. You only knew seven of the answers. Yes. You only have to listen to the past two episodes to know all the answers. Making it very so, easy. So you don't have to dig deep into the Cinephile files. People were furious with the last quiz. It was nearly impossible. And, you know, we've made it a little easier here. You know, touch and go for a while. Question one. The episode you are currently listening listening to is what number podcast of Cinephile? So that's a piece of cake. You should be able to figure that out. Just go to iTunes or the ESPN app. You see it listed there. Question two. Where did Adnan leave his wife and children in New York City while he went to watch Silence, which is well over two and a half hours long? Well over is another five minutes, so two hours and 35 minutes. I think the total runtime is two hours, 37 that, minutes, but I can't confirm that offhand. Right? I should have written it down. It didn't. Yeah. But, you know. I, I'm, I'm perfectly willing, by the way, to continue this uh, stereotype of a delinquent father, but for the last three days, I have been spent at Flight Trampoline Park, Chuck E. Cheese, and Disney on Ice. But go ahead. Question three. Which film did Mark Wahlberg's wife talk him into doing? This is a good one because you'd have to listen carefully. I actually had to think carefully. Good one. 
I actually didn't ask you for your answers. You just assumed you knew them. So you may be wrong. Who knows? Right. No, no, I know what it is. Question four. Which film did Owen Gluberman tell us that he went, quote, balls out, <laughs> quote, in writing his review for? This is the best question that you dialed up. Quick Owen Gleiberman story. May I or do you want to do the quiz? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Because uh, Mike Diesenhoff, one of the producers here, he texted me, oh my God, you got Owen Gleiberman. And my friend Gabe Oppenheim was like, oh my God, you got Owen Gleiberman. I'm like, yeah. Like, if you're a movie nerd, you know Owen Gleiberman wrote reviews for Entertainment Weekly for 24 years. Here's how I got him. He wrote Movie Freak last year, his book. Uh, I tweeted about it and then amazingly he followed me back. So then I sent a DM going, Owen, I've been following you for years and I started quoting all his reviews. I did what Ben Affleck did to him. And then he wrote back, oh, my God, I'm so flattered, et cetera. And I said, this is really odd. I get it. But can I meet you? Like, I have so many questions uh, about film criticism. And I just read your book, and I have so many questions. And he put back, I wouldn't ordinarily do this, but sure, come to New York sometime. We'll meet. So Owen Gleiberman and I had lunch there, and he's awesome. And that was back in March, and that's how we had him on the podcast. Did you drive your wife and kids down there and leave no, them I, somewhere? I went solo, then I had to do the Deitch podcast on SI. That was the same day. I knocked out two birds with one stone. And for the record, my friend Gabe tells me he was at a seminar with Lisa Schwartz. Schwartzbaum was speaking. She was also the longtime film critic with EW. She said his name was pronounced Owen Gleiberman. I go, you're kidding. It's what, That's what he says. Now, Owen did not correct us. So my apologies if he's listening or anyone else is listening. I would have assumed Owen Gleiberman the way it's spelled, but apparently it is Gleiberman. Go ahead. Question five. According to Adnan, the worst idea in cinematic history was a shot-for-shot remake <laughs> of which film? This is a good one. I like that. Question six. Keegan-Michael Key told us that in a year or two, we'll be hearing about this actress seemingly every day. Yeah, this one I had no idea. Listen to Just this listen one. to the interview. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, you'll figure it you'll out. Know the Go ahead, listen to it. Yep. Uh, question seven. According to Adnan, Will Smith's best cinematic role is in this movie. And finally, my favorite question. Adnan's favorite line from Dog Day Afternoon <laughs> is blank. <laughs> this is a layup. If Should I? this. Am I going too far? And I want to say it's your favorite Pacino line of all time. No, I think that's probably accurate because when I first saw him outside of Glengarry Glen Ross, it's the first thing that I started yelling at him. I did not yell, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. I immediately went with this line. So, yeah, you didn't yell, hoo Yeah, exactly. I gave a couple of those afterwards, but I was like, everyone else was doing that, so I forgot to try something different. There's the quiz. First 10 responses at Cinephile ESPN, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E ESPN. Thanks as always. By the way, we're on iTunes under Film and TV. We, we've... We've fallen just, we just, I don't understand what's happened here, but we're down to the hundreds now. We were, I don't know how the hell we were up to like five and all of a sudden we're like 120th, but please go to iTunes and, and rate the podcast and write a review. Kathy Jets, Kathy Leo Grant hooking me up. I saw her review. I, I talk too fast, but she likes our chemistry and says, make sure you subscribe because you want to go back and listen to it. And, and it's a nice compliment. She said, you'll drive 20 miles in some other direction and you'll realize what was I supposed to do because you'll get so immersed in the, the level of film geekness. So thanks for the reviews. I read them. Trust me. I, 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 oh, yeah. What's, what's, what, are, what are people saying? I go back and check them out. Uh, somebody, this may have been actually Dan who wrote it. Somebody said, uh, too many Canada references. The Canada references get old, but the Scorsese stories never do. So that, that may have been you. As long as we don't mention the Rough Riders yeah, exactly. as a football team, right, right. I'm good. You have no issue with Canada. It's just that specifically. So thanks to all those. Once again, rate the show uh, on iTunes. Top 10 movies of the year. Used to always be my favorite part of Siskel and Eber. Let's see what their best movies of the year are. You want honorable mentions first, Dan, or you want me to go 1 to 10 or 10 to 1? Or I think you've got to go 10 to 1, and so give me the honorable mentions first. You got it. So honorable mentions, we have The Lobster, one of the funniest movies of the year. First hour is hysterical. I thought the second hour it lost steam, but very bone-dry humor. One of Colin Farrell's best performances. John C. Riley is also a standout. The Infiltrator, the Brian Cranston, terrific crime film, which is a genre I personally have a lot of uh, attention and zeal for. Cranston is nails playing the opposite of what we know him as is Walter White, of course, the drug kingpin. This time he's a DEA agent. I thought it was taut and suspenseful. Wiener, the political documentary about the disgraced life of the politician, a wonderful behind-the-scenes look at what pol- political life is like, and you really feel for Wiener, or you're just disgusted by him. Either way, it's, it's a documentary that is sure to get a lot of emotion out of you. La La Land, lots of – if you're a song and dance man, you'll love it. Musicals are not my cup of tea, but there's no doubt it's going to sweep the Oscars, and I thought it had thrilling production values, uh, very likable stars, and Damien Chazelle further proves he's a director to watch. And Hitchcock Truffaut, if you're a real movie geek like I am, you'll love this. 
a TCM, by the way. Once the Oscars are over, I can't wait to go watch some more old movies. I've been trying to watch a little more TCM. They had Reds on the other day, the great Warren Beatty film. And I was watching some of Psycho the other day. I DVR'd it. I mean, just I, – I, people always know the shower scene alone, which they talk about in Hitchcock Truffaut. But try watching Psycho again, start to finish. So there, there's a lot to love about that movie. And this documentary, which features Scorsese, David Fincher, Wes Anderson, many others talking about the influence of Alfred Hitchcock on their work. Those are the audible mentions. You get five of those. Number 10, we'll give it to Fences. A little bit stagey. You can tell within five minutes it's based on a play by August Wilson. In fact, the first 20 minutes feel a little didactic for my taste, but outstanding performances from Denzel Washington and Viola Davis. In fact, it's Denzel's best work in decades. Uh, it's up there with Gloria Malcolm X and his best work. He nails the role. Viola Davis is going to win an Oscar. I believe one of the three words they used for her was phlegm. Uh, you get one of those phlegm scenes from Viola Davis. Dan, interject for a second. You did not like Fences, which is surprising. I didn't. I've learned a little bit here working on this podcast, pro bono, <laughs> uh, that in film you should show and not tell. And a lot of that film I thought was told and not shown. Let's, For example, there's a major character, for lack of a better term, I don't want to give him any spoilers, who is not shown at all. And there's all these conversations about how great Denzel is at baseball. Nothing. Right. Give me a flashback. It's a movie. It's not a play. Give me something. Fair criticism. Number nine is Lion. I went in, and I this is probably the best way you should watch a movie. I wouldn't say it's the only way, but it's probably the best way, if you know nothing. All I knew was Merrimax, Harvey Weinstein, Deb Patel, Nicole Kidman, and it's about an Indian kid. That's literally, and I know it's an Oscar contender. That's all I knew. Didn't, I didn't even see the trailer. So I'm like, all right, let's watch this. Let's just check this out. It's going to be on the list. First hour is extraordinary. That's just where it's the little kid who's five or six years old. He came out of the Golden Globes with Deb Patel. He's such a cutie. Uh, that first hour is unbelievable. I was like, oh my God, if this movie keeps up, this is, this is the best movie of the year because it really drops you into that world of this little kid who, uh, gets misplaced and he's trying to get back home and it's, it's gripping and it's cinema verite. Like it's right in your face. The second hour I thought was good, but it became a little more predictable. That's when the adults show up. Then you get Deb Patel and Nicole Kidman and all the rest of it. Like, okay, now, now it's an adoption story and it's interesting and it's still, uh, enjoyable. And the ending is very powerful. But the first hour I thought was extraordinary. So definitely go see Lion. Uh, a movie that I didn't know much about, even though I don't care for Garth Davis getting a DGA nomination. If he gets a director nomination, that's a joke. But number nine is Lion. Go check it out. Eight is Deadpool. I thought I was going to be so unique and be one of these critics who was putting Deadpool up there. But then the PGA, the Producers Guild Award, they nominated Deadpool as one of the best pictures of the year. And now it has an outside, very outside, but that's an outside chance at a best picture nomination. So I thought I was being different and unique by giving you a superhero movie that's crass and vulgar and against the grain. But, but other critics are jumping on it too so i feel like it's not as much a of a novelty pick as i was hoping but ryan reynolds best performance of his life uh tough to find a better melding of character and actor and his persona than deadpool reynolds is a is a smart aleck and and he's <laughs> just just a wise ass that's pretty much what deadpool is all about and he's so funny and he and he nails the character and i i personally have revolted against too many superhero movies i thought deadpool did a good job of going against the grain giving you a superhero movie but one that goes against the grain number seven is hell or high water terrific texas crime film jeff bridges is nominated for going to be nominated for best supporting actor he ben foster chris pine the whole cast excellent atmosphere for days when i think of hell or high water when we had billy bob thornton here i praised his film one false move in some ways hell or high water reminds me of that really good gritty crime film. Number six, the film geek and me loved De Palma, a documentary of one of the great directors just telling stories about all of his movies. I wish we could do this every year. I wish next year we had a film called Spielberg and the year after that we'd have a movie called Scorsese and the next year after that we had a movie called Spike and it was just the directors talking about all of their movies. Of course, the disappointment would be not all of them are as good as Brian De Palma because he is blunt and abrasive and funny and genuine and sincere and brilliant and he has wonderful recall and he is a, a talented raconteur as he tells all these anecdotes from all of his films and he, he really gives you a clear indication of how an artist like him could survive in Hollywood and why artists like him are dying in Hollywood and why he hasn't made many movies over the last 10 years uh, but really funny and entertaining go check out De Palma it literally is just a director telling stories about his his movies uh, so credit to Noah Baumbach and others for taking a chance on that film. Number five is The Phenom. I'm going to get at least one sports movie in here because we are at ESPN. Um, I thought it was a story when you hear about Johnny Manziel and other athletes like this and troubled youth and why guys don't pan out. The Phenom takes a pretty big swing at why guys like that do not work out. And it's a real psychological drama at a kid who can't miss 100-mile-an-hour fastball, has all the talents in the world, but he has a ruthless and relentless father played by Ethan Hawke who – 
kind of shades of De Niro in this boy's life is just driving this kid up the wall. He's got to meet with Paul Giamatti, who's a sports psychologist, so it's shades of goodwill hunting uh, as he tries to counsel this kid. But I thought I took a lot of chances. Again, a sports film that is an anti-sports film that you only get maybe 10 minutes of actual sports action, but contemporary and current and took a lot of chances. Number four, Born to be Blue. No one's talking about it. It's one of my best pictures of the year. The jazz biopic with Ethan Hawke. So Ethan Hawke with a strong one-two here at four and five with Born to be Blue and The Phenom. As I tweeted, I have an affinity for jazz music, black and white sequences, uh, tortured artist biopics. So granted, these are all some of the things that I personally love, but I thought it was extraordinary acting by him. Um, it also happens to be a wonderful love story. It's got great wall-to-wall music, and it's one of many films which deal with addiction and why artists often find themselves in the spiral of addiction, and it's so tough to get out of. Number three is O.J. Made in America, my favorite documentary of the year, absolutely spellbinding from start to finish. I remember watching the first hour. Many people said they were hooked early on. I was not. I thought it was all right. I mean, it was setting the tone for what Los Angeles was like uh, with race riots and civil tension. I said, okay, it's fine. Like, I get where Ezra Edelman's going with this. But I thought once they hit the trial and hit the ground running, it was Fabulous. In particular, uh, the Dream Team episode is amazing, showing how these defense lawyers who are morally bankrupt, yet absolutely conniving and sensational at their jobs, managed to turn the trial of the century into what was a double homicide into a, a court case about race. OJ Made in America, amazing. It's going to win Best Documentary. I can't recommend it enough. I know it's 10 episodes, maybe a little long for some people, but trust me, it's rewarding. Number two is Manchester by the Sea, Kenneth Lonergan's drama set in wintry New England. Casey Affleck gives the performance of his career. He's going to win Best Actor, uh, playing a man with dark secrets and trying to overcome this tumult of grief and tragedy for a film that's as dark and as serious as it is. It's also really funny. Uh, so don't be put off by the severity of the subject matter. Great cast all around. I'm curious to see who the SAGs are going to give the best ensemble to. Manchester by the Sea is up for it. Fences. I think Manchester by the Sea, if you look at not only Affleck, but Michelle Williams and Kyle Chandler and Lucas Hedges, I thought all their performances really were pitch perfect. And number one is Silence. Scorsese's long in the making, 28-year epic some are going to find it long and boring and repetitive. I found it transfixing and revelatory and haunting and contemplative and meditative and amazing to make. In this day and age, as Owen Gleiberman had mentioned, guys like him and Oliver Stone, it's tough to make $50 million movies now. Either you're making a $5 million movie like Moonlight or you're making a $100 million movie like Deadpool. To try to make a mid-range adult film, which is non-commercial, is awfully difficult. But credit for Marty to pulling it off. Uh, for this contemplative work and some of the most restrained filmmaking of his career. I mentioned on the last podcast some great reviews that I read about Silence. Go check out Ty Burr. we got to get Ty Burr on sometime. He's a Boston Globe film critic, long-time work to Entertainment Weekly. He's awesome. Uh, his review, he gave three and a half stars. He talked about how Marty, you know, being the uh, film geek that he is, in a lot of ways one of the characters is probably based on Toshiro Mifune, one of Kurosawa's main leading men. His review is awesome. Go check out Ty Burr's review in the Boston Globe of Silence, my number one film. Of the year. Go ahead, Dan. What do we got? All right. A few notable exceptions. Yes. The misses here. Moonlight. Right? Moonlight did not crock the top 10 or the top 15, really. We're yes. saying like. Herschel Ali, awesome. But spoiler alert, he's not in the movie nearly enough for my taste. Totally agree with that. Good movie. Didn't think it was great. I would say not an enjoyable movie, but an important movie. Yes. And I talked to somebody about it. They go, How, How's it going to do the Oscars? And I said, Well, let's be honest. The Oscars are a political machine. I think that movie is feeling the push from, hey, let's support a gay black movie, which is a clearly demographic, which has been underrepresented and undershown in Hollywood. Doesn't necessarily indicate the quality of the film, although it is good. All right. No, no surprise here. You left off Zootopia. Yeah. <laughs> Probably going to win Best Animated Film, right? Uh, yes. I okay. liked it. All right. All the way? Uh, you know, I didn't count HBO movies. That doesn't count? No, HBO movies are separate. But I would have put All the Way in for Arnold movies. Okay. And then the one that crushed me. Popstar. I, actually, I thought you'd <laughs> yeah. you have that in there. Arrival. Yeah, I don't Not top 15. Good movie. Thought it was well done. If you like science fiction, definitely. And for guys like me and Dan who are not sci-fi acolytes, I do recommend it because it goes against the grain. Listen, you'll get some love at the audience. Amy Adams is going to get nominated. Villeneuve is going to get nominated for director cinematography. We should get, I should get Popstar in there somehow. What a, I'll take out Wiener and get Popstar in there. Andy Samberg is making the list for honorable mention. We need to get comedies. I don't want the snooty film critic label. Pop Star is one of the best films of the year. <laughs> and great movie to watch with your mom. Go watch Florence Foster Jenkins, by the way. Give that one some love, too. Hugh Grant, performance of his career. 
as good as four weddings and a funeral. A couple of reviews before we get to Ice Cube, who's going to be in the house. Also, Ben Lyons from ESPN LA 710 is going to join us. Uh, ben Lyons is like a better version of me. He loves sports and movies, so we'll talk about movies with Ben, including the fact he's a very famous father who's a film critic, Jeffrey Lyons. I would always wonder what that is like to have a dad who's a film critic. What movies did he pass along to his son as he was growing up? But I, as I mentioned, Lion is what I saw. I'm giving it three and a half stars. Extraordinary first hour. Second hour I thought was fine. I mean, it's good. Uh, but like I said, it feels a little bit predictable. There's a real Oscar baiting scene with Nicole Kidman that I was put off by. I may have to go on Gold Derby and take Nicole Kidman out of my supporting actress league now. Because I, I just thought it was, even though, again, Gold Derby is supposed to be what I think is going to happen, not what I want to happen. But I will will it to happen because it was just completely unnecessary and so transparent. And a movie that didn't hit a lot of false notes. I said, this five-minute scene here shot in close-up, there's no point to the scene except to try to get Nicole Kidman a nomination. So that's out. Uh, Deb Patel, excellent, though. Very good actor, and he gave a really good performance. You really feel um, his inner turmoil and the fact he wants to try to find out. I guess I just spoil it a little bit now. I said, as I said, I saw it with knowing nothing, but this is what it's about. Six-year-old kid's uh, not a runaway. He gets misplaced on a train in India, gets taken 2,000 miles away. Uh, you know, For people that don't know the train of India, there's so many different languages and dialects spoken there. He obviously cannot speak the language. I believe he goes to where they're speaking Bengali, and he can't understand it because he speaks Hindi. Um, so then he gets transported. Eventually, he gets sent to an orphanage, and from there, he gets adopted by Nicole Kidman and her husband. And then the second half of the film is when he is now Dave Patel. You know, he's in his 20s, and he wants to find out his origins and find out who actually raised him and where his mother is and his brother is. So the, the movie is about this journey to go back home again. Did not know based on a true story. So again, I knew nothing about this. I'm like, oh, wow. So that makes the ending even more emotionally resonant and poignant because it is actually based on a true story. Um, so I, I give weight to that. If I watch a film and I, and I find it inspiring and I go, oh, that's too bad that didn't actually happen. Like that, that's way too Hollywood. And they go, wait, it's a true story. Okay. Then, then I give it a little bit more oomph that I give it some more gravity and say, all right, sometimes some stories are too good to be true. Cause it, it is really nice. What is it happening in lion? The movie that I really dislike though, the one I'm going to have to torture now is Jackie, which got like 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's rave reviews. All right, Jackie's going to be great. And Mark Simon, who works here at ESPN, he had DM me and said, I didn't like it. And I'm shocked. I'm like, come on, Mark, what are you talking about? And tell me, Portman at least is great, right? She's going to get nominated. And he goes, I'll go by what everybody's saying and say she's good, but I did not like the film. And Mark's reservations to me, he said, I'll wait till you see it. I said, no, no, tell me now. He goes, there's way too many close-ups and it's tedious. And he's bang on. Because he's going to remind him of Moneyball, which I really like Moneyball. So I like the way that was shot by Bennett Miller. But um, jarring close-ups. Like when you go see a movie, I, I mean, there's a, there's a whole point to shot selection. Like you can't shoot an entire movie in close-up because then obviously it just feels claustrophobic. You want to be able to step away from the film. There's a reason why you have an establishing shot, a medium shot, a medium close-up, a close-up. When it's all close-up all the time, you just want to get out of the film. And it, it just it honestly makes you want to get out of it. And the first 15 minutes is just Jackie being interviewed. And it's all like in these jarring close-ups. I'm like, man, I don't even like the way this is being shot. Forget about the subject matter alone. And here's the thing. Maybe being Canadian hurts, but I don't know anything about Jackie. I want to know about how she met JFK. I want to know about her life growing up. I don't know about her upbringing. I don't know anything about post-JFK. So I'm, I'm expecting, and I'm hoping in this case for a conventional biography. This is an unconventional biography. This is just two days Jack's killed and the aftermath a week later. That's it. That's the entire movie. And I thought that was a real downfall of the film. I thought they needed a familiar trajectory. When I watched The Iron Lady, I don't know a ton about Margaret Thatcher, but I want to have a biopic. I want a Meryl Streep to explain to me the rise and fall of The Iron Lady. Who was this woman who captured uh, the attention of people in England and who was reviled by some but eventually became a very important historical figure? I don't get that watching Jackie. I get a ton of close-ups. I got grief. I got mourning. Uh, her character is very unlikable. I guess I give them credit for taking chances. Like the Jackie that you're watching seems rather shrill and cold and manipulative and uh, very controlling of her environment and how she's going to be portrayed and her family in the aftermath of JFK's uh, assassination. Um, but yeah, I, I was a real dud for me. I'm giving it one and a half Maple Leafs. Um, I, I feel free to mention sometimes maybe I missed the mark, but I, I encourage people to go see Jackie just to either agree with me or tell me I'm wrong because I was a huge disappointment. I found it tedious and slow and plodding, and it was a 
awful film experience. I'm giving it one and a half Maple Leafs only for Portman's performance. And let me also clarify this. This isn't one of those movies where you go, it's really bad, but it's a great starring performance. Even she, I thought, was fine and adequate, but I don't think it was a stellar performance. And in fact, if I have a vote right now, it's Emma Stone for Best Actress. It would then be Amy Adams for Arrival. It would then be Meryl Streep for Florence Foster Jenkins. It would then be Ruth Naga for Loving, who may not get nominated now. And then I would slot in Natalie Portman. I think she definitely has the outside in. She looks like Jackie. She has the mannerisms and, like I said, cultivates that air of coolness. But I did not think it was a full-figured performance. I thought it was fairly one note. It's just here she is grieving. This is how she deals with the grief, and that's it. So I don't think that to me, just because you look like a famous character, maybe this is a bunch of Hollywood liberals just going, all right, let's support Jackie. Because to me, I, I did not think it was the movie worthy of all the hype. Now, Dan, you haven't seen Silence. Are you going to go see Jackie? <laughs> Not after that. I mean, I'm a big JFK assassination conspiracy kind of guy. And it should be pointed out, you said she acted a little conniving and shrill in the aftermath. Yeah. There are so many emotions going on there that everyone, American at least, I don't mean to be derogatory, no, no, I got you, I got you. Uh, can kind of connect with. And she actually got a lot of credit for trying to maintain Jack's legacy almost right. and kind of trying to control the narrative so when you what you see is conniving she actually got a lot of credit for yeah you know the, the journalist who's doing the interview with her basically what like whatever answer she gives she says i'm going to see the manuscript after which is rule number one of a journalism like no i'm going to write the story i'll write she's like, no, no 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 we're going to talk and then i'm going to go and edit it and change stuff and quotes and at the end the the interviewer which is surprising because you know she's basically changing his entire article says this country is going to remember you years from now for the way you dealt with this and she's like, you know, well, whatever. Like, you know, I'm, that's not what I'm thinking about. He's like, but people will remember this, how you dealt the week after, you know, Jack's death, what you did. Uh, speaking of show, don't tell, they do show the assassination, which is very powerful. I will say that. That scene alone, it's 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 still shocking to imagine uh, a presidential assassination, especially somebody who was so beloved at that time. All right. So one and a half Maple Leafs there for Jackie, three and a half for line. And I gave you my top 10 of the year. Tweet us at Cinephile, C-I-N-A-P-H-I-L-E ESPN. Or you can always tweet me at Adnan ESPN. As now it's time for the real star of the show, Ice Cube is in the house. Great to have here on Cinephile, the Adnan Burke movie podcast, Ice Cube, my new best friend. This is the second time we've seen each other in the last few days. Yeah, yeah, man. I want to go back before we go forward. Okay. Boys in the Hood. Yeah. I watched it again for the first time. And this is what's great about Boys in the Hood. If you haven't seen it in a long time, which it was, came out in 1989. Yes. I was only 11 when it came out. And for me, I knew nothing about black lives, South Central L.A. It's this completely yeah. different world. And you watch it now, and some of those movies, you watch them, they feel dated. But but Boys in the Hood does it. It actually still feels really lived in and really authentic. And it, to me, it, it makes your arrival as Doughboy. Cuba Gooding Jr. is an actor to be reckoned with who later won an Oscar for Jerry Maguire. Yes. John Singleton, who was nominated for an Oscar, this young black director that Hollywood was like, oh, my God, where did this come from? What do you think about now when you think about Boys in the Hood? You know, it was a great movie because it introduced you to people like Doughboy. You know, before we would see guys like Doughboy only getting in the back of a police car or, you know, 11 o'clock news. You see a guy, you never hear his voice. You don't know his story. He just looked like a criminal. Mm -hmm. Now, Boys in the Hood was the first time where you understood why guys come out the wrong way or go the wrong way, even if they come out a nice Nice homes, nice neighborhoods. It's really how they're treated in the home and the environment in the home, you know. And, and these things wasn't explored before Boys in the Hood with these kind of guys. I remember reading, not that there was beef, but this almost understood rivalry with Menace to Society and Boys in the Hood. And, and one critic argued that Boys in the Hood was appealing for what we should see. And, and he referred to it as like Reagan family values of if the family takes care of itself, it can overcome. Whereas Menace to Society, he found, was much more darker, much more pessimistic, like this is the way gang violence is. Did you ever see any, not necessarily rivalry, but differences between the two films? Or do you think they kind of worked on a complementary level explaining black life? I think they worked in a complementary level. You know, with movies, you, you, you have to pick your poison on what, what's the ultimate message. And you kind of have to stick with that. Because if you're all over the place, then nobody gets no message out of it. So, you know, John you know, pick the increase the peace message. Right. Um, but, but you know, with, with Menace, you know, which I thought was kind of maybe a little over hyper of what goes down on a day-to-day -day basis, 
you know, it was a little, little bit, uh, kind of, um, I guess, uh, um, heightened the, 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 the sense of what's going on mm-hmm. more than capturing it totally. So I, th- I believe both movies, um, hit the mark, most of them, but also slightly miss, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, it's no way to capture real life in a film. For you as an actor, I mean, it's an extraordinary career you've had because someone says Ice Cube and for certain people, they go NWA and they talk with the music and that's it. Now we're going to talk about Big Three and this new venture you're doing. And for other people, it's movies and acting. What acting influences did you have? Did you go to acting school or did you start taking classes or how did you say, I'm going to make this transition? Well, no, I never went to school or classes. Uh, You know, I've been doing it really off natural ability for a minute Mm -hmm. Um, and what what got me into this was really John Singleton. You know, I never thought I would make a movie. I never, you know, I, I didn't even know. I, I didn't even look at myself as being qualified because <laughs> I'm like, I have no training or anything. So it's something that he saw in me, you know, and um, and I started working with him, you know, on Boys in the Hood. And then he looked at me one day and said, yo, man, when are you going to write you a movie? And I'm just like, wait, what? Dude. I said, I, I said man, I write. I, I can't write no movie. He said, he said, yeah. He said, those records you write, I know you can write a movie. And that just, just that little, uh, little nudge, you know what I'm saying? Helped me to say, you know, I can do it. I'm going to try it. And then I just started trying it. I wrote my first script, uh, called America eats this young and it sucked. It was <laughs> terrible. It was the worst. And then, <laughs> you know, I wrote a second script called faux life. And it was better, you know, it was getting there. And then, then the third script I wrote with my man DJ Pooh was Friday. And I don't know what's more amazing. If someone said, hey, Ice Cube is going to morph from this counterculture rapper to an established actor to a comedic actor. Like Friday is one of the great comedies of the last 20 years. It's so quotable. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that you were able to make that transition to me, that that's pretty impressive. It was great. You know, it, it's a trip because I wasn't looking at it like, oh, man, I'm 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 going to be so different than than people know me as. You know, it was kind of like, you know, I wrote it with DJ Pooh, so I knew the characters up and down. These was this is my neighborhood, basically, you know, crushed into one day, you know, so I knew all the all the characters, all the usual suspects. And I just, you know, played Craig like a guy that basically how i am you know a guy who you know is stuck in the hood with a bunch of crazies <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and so it just works so you know it's cool to to do comedy but not try to be a comedian it's cool to right. do comedy and stay in your lane right and do what you do and not try to make people laugh right you know you're playing a character you stick to that we're talking with ice cube his new film fist fight gonna be coming out february 17th also Big three, which we'll get into in just a second, this new three-on-three basketball league. You're listening to Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. Three Kings is a movie that I think got great critical acclaim as well, yes. had a different experience and a look at the war. What was it like working with George Clooney? Oh, man, George is great. You know, uh, him, Mark Wahlberg, you know, those guys, and uh, Spike Jones. Yeah. you know. Uh, we had a good time, you know, and we was making a complicated movie in the, in the middle of uh, the Arizona desert. Uh, and David O. Russell is, you know, his own brand of director. He's screaming at you while you're acting, right? Is that yeah, true? Yeah, he, uh, you know, he screams out lines, you know. He, say it like this. No, 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 no. You know what? Put your head, tilt your head down a little. Now say it. You know, he's, uh, you know, and it, it, if, if you, if you, you know, are not confident, it could shake you because you'd be like, what the hell does this dude want? But he wants it all. And, and he wants, he wants different uh, nuances of of what you're doing, so he can use it. You know, so it's a method to the madness, but it's it's, it's madness for sure. <laughs> yeah, Mark Wahlberg's worked on a few times, and he yeah. said he likes it because he uses it like motivation, like whatever yeah. he's saying. He's really into it. But I would just think sometimes I would, I would want to just break character, like, "Hey, lay off! I'm giving it to him." It's going to say, "Not with da- not with David." You know, it's right. something about him where he. You know he's only doing it to get the best performance. And right. we've taken months to set up this shot, right. and you got to get it. And I learned from David, I learned, do not move the camera under any circumstances until you get what you love. I don't care if everybody's yelling, we're running out of time, right. you know, this, uh, 
don't move it. Tell everybody shut up and get it. Because once you move, right, you can't get it no more. We got this many camera setups, this many. I don't care yep. if it's 37 takes. You're yep. right. <clears throat> I straight out of Compton, we talked about briefly in Tampa Off Air, but I thought it was a special movie because not only was it a cultural touchstone in showing what life was like a few decades ago, but also what life is like now. And you mm-hmm. told me while you were shooting, that's when stuff was going on Ferguson. in Ferguson as yeah. well. What was it like to know that you're making a movie about the past and yet, unfortunately, issues like police brutality and the distrust with the, the black public still exist? It it was sad. You know, it was sad the fact that, you know, the only thing has changed really is the time. But the attitudes, the the feelings, the, you know, the, the oppressiveness of it, <clears throat> you know, is a disease. And it's, it's, it's it infects everybody. And, you know, uh, and it's something that shouldn't happen. There's no reason for it to happen. And it has to be. Uh, change in attitude uh, when it comes to not only law enforcement, because I can't just put it all on them, but mm-hmm. but people in the hood and how they deal with things. You know, everybody's attitude got to change for the better. Yeah, Charles Barkley has said that. He goes, listen, I, I, I like a lot of cops. The majority of cops are good. Like, I have an issue with excessive force, but too many people in our neighborhoods are out there looting and, and acting stupid. And he goes, I get mad at them, too. That- yeah, everybody, you know, in my records, you know, people say my records are hardcore, but everybody gets it. Nobody's <laughs> safe. You know what I mean? If you're black and you you messing up, you get it. Right. White, you get it. You know, female, male, you get it. It don't matter, you know, because I think every pencil needs to be sharpened at some point in time. <laughs> and that includes your son, O'Shea Jackson Jr., who was great in the movie. What advice did you give him on set? Because not only is he a dead ringer for you, but I thought he captured a lot of that passion that you guys had at that time. Um, you know, I guess the best piece of advice was uh, not to act, hmm. become, you know, you have to become me. You can't act like I am and do a impression. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he, you know, he followed that, you know, Gary Gray, which is a director of, uh, Stratton Compton, you know, worked closely with him. And, uh, you know, my son worked very hard because he knew credibility was on the line and people thought it was nepotism and you know and you know he never acted before so people you know it was just kind of like we're making a serious movie or not what's going on you know and so he had to work harder than the other actors and and i'm glad he did and it showed me a lot about who who he is inside and his character Speaking of credibility, I thought Paul Giamatti was critical for that movie because very you, critical, right? You have all these unknown actors, including your son, and then you get this A-list guy who I thought was great in many ways was was the heart of the movie, without a doubt. Because you know you need a guy like Paul Giamatti with this movie because it's so easy for people not to take it serious because it's rap, it's Stratton Compton, and if that's not your cup of tea, then you know you could be turned off. But when you see somebody like Paul Giamatti, you say, "Hey." You know, I like, you know, this dude, he don't, he don't just jump in any movie. So this must be something. And just having that, um, you know, going into the movie with that attitude made people accept the movie for what it is. And, um, you know, it's it's been it's been more than what we expected. That was a big hit. I hope Fist Fight is a huge hit. Seeing the trailers right now, February seventeenth, you and Charlie Day, who's hilarious and horrible bosses. Yeah. Uh, tell me about how funny this movie is. It's real funny. You know, uh, Charlie is the perfect guy to play Andy Campbell, which is like a teacher who's more or less trying to be everybody's friend, <laughs> students' friend. And then I play a guy named uh, Ron Strickland, who is the the teacher that wants to grab every student up by the collar, you know. So you get those two in the class, and we both have different philosophies on how to teach, mm-hmm. and and we clash, and, and, and it's a fist fight after school in the parking lot with two teachers. <laughs> Who wouldn't love to see that? February 17th in theaters. And last one for you, big three. When we spoke in Tampa on Monday, you said we're close to getting Iverson, and now Iverson is in just a couple days later. So Iverson, Kenyon Martin, Chauncey Billups, Stephen Jackson, Jason Williams, Jermaine O'Neal, Mike Baby, Richard Lewis, Bonzi Wells. This is seriously A-list. This is a three-on-three basketball league, eight teams, and it's going to be starting in June. June twenty-fourth. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great concept. You know, I, I was sick of seeing my favorite players retire and still got game. And um, you know, we wanted to create a format which is the three-on-three format. Um, and give them another stage and, and hopefully extend careers and 
have something for NBA players to look forward to, you know. Um, and we're starting off with a with a with a nice uh, foundation, and um, this thing is really sm- snowballing into something great. People want to know: Can you ball? Like, can you? Yeah, I can ball. You're yeah. gonna hang with it. I, I can mess I- around and get a triple double. <laughs> <laughs> The Russell Westbrook of the Big Three. Yes. Look forward to the Big Three. It is Ice Cube, his new film, Fist Fight, in theaters February 17th. Thanks so much for the time, man. I'm in. Thanks for having me. Joining us now is our friend Ben Lyons. If you watch ESPN, you know his work on ESPN LA 710. He's now getting quite a bit of run when I see him on SportsCenter talking about the New York Knicks, which is a topic which we are not going to delve into. Of course, he's also worked as an entertainment reporter and is the son of famed film critic Jeffrey Lyons. Ben, welcome to Cinefile. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well, and then thanks for having me on the show. I would rather talk religious persecution <laughs> films than the New York Knicks. We will dive into silence momentarily. Okay. Thank okay, you. Good. By the way, Spaceman, you were one of the producers behind. I hope people go check it out. Where can they find Spaceman? And can you send me the poster? Because that's the first ever movie blurb that I've gotten on a poster. <laughs> Yes, Adnan's on the poster. We didn't get the Maple Leafs up there, but we got your words. Uh, yeah, the film stars Josh Duhamel as Bill Spaceman Lee. You know, he played for the Red Sox in the 70s and the Expos in the 80s. He's on the cover of High Times while he was in the majors, which something tells me will never happen again. And, uh, yeah, the film's available on iTunes and Amazon, and, and Josh is fantastic in it, and, and you were great for for seeing it early and getting the word out, man. These little independent films need all the help they can get, so we really appreciate the support. No question. A baseball big Lebowski. I hope people check it out. Like you said, Josh is terrific, and it's fun, and it's smart and engaging. As are you, and as is your dad, Jeffrey Lyons, the famed film critic. I wanted to start with this because my dad is fabulous, but he doesn't know anything about movies. So I want to know, what is it like to have a dad who could tell you the difference between Akira Kurosawa and Yasujiro Ozu when you're like 16 years old? What was that like? (laughs) You know, it's funny, man. When you're a kid and you stay home from school and you're like, Dad, Dad, all I want to watch is the latest Adam says. I just want to watch Happy Gilmore for the 15th time. He's like, okay, well, here's also Shane. Or here's High Noon. <laughs> how about or the French TikTok. New Wave? Yeah, yeah. yeah, how about the French Connection? Because not only is it a great film, but he has a cameo in the film playing a reporter. Critics nice. said he was unconvincing. Um, so, yeah, I was opened up to, to films at a very early age that I would have never been exposed to, which helped spark my own interest. And then in high school and college, is when I really, really started to dive in and study it. I remember taking Robert Altman classes and Kubrick classes and going with my dad when he would do interviews with Woody Allen. Or I remember very being young and seeing Saving Private Ryan, and the next day my dad was in a celebrity softball game with Ed Burns, and I just picked his ear for like two hours in the dugout, uh, just asking him about the film. And, and, and that's sort of what sparked an interest in it for me. But now it's fun when... You know, I get to go to Sundance and see movies that he doesn't see for six to seven months later, and then we argue about them and drives my mother crazy at dinner. But, uh, but yeah, it definitely helped expose me to directors, Spike Lee, Woody Allen, Scorsese, like people I wouldn't have seen at the age of 10, 11 years old. That, that really got me hooked. <laughs> That's so cool. Man. I just imagine, like a 10-year-old, like you said, you just want to watch some nice... Uh, you know, slapstick comedy. It's like, all right, Dad, Ernest goes to camp this time. (laughs) Ernest scared stupid. Come on. No, taxi driver again. Like, all right, we'll we'll just fast forward the Jodie Foster scenes. Um, Best pictures of this year. You loved La La Land. Tell me why. I believe it's your number one. I did, man. You know, for me, when you're talking award season and, you know, uh, giving out all these accolades to all these talented artists, for me, a best picture has got to do two simple things. It changes the way you look at the world and it changes the way you look at film. I got married this year. I'm obviously in a romantic spirit and, and, and looking at the world a little differently. And that film set in Los Angeles, where I live, about love and following your dreams and compromise and relationships and, and ambition um, and perseverance that that really spoke to me at this time in my life, and the way that film represents every aspect of filmmaking, dude, from the costumes to the writing to the locations to the acting to the editing. I mean that that is a fully fleshed out vision from the director who's not even thirty. I don't think. I don't think Damien Chazelle's thirty years old yet, which is which is so crazy in Hollywood to have such a young director who, when you're watching his work, you're like, okay, this is clearly what he wanted to say and what he wanted to do with this, with this piece. There's no studio executive in the back being like, why doesn't Gosling take his shirt off more? You know, there's something that, that it's, it's his vision. And, and to me, it just, it just was such a light 
breath of fresh air in a very heavy award season. Oftentimes, you know, not to discredit a lot of the other films, but sometimes just that 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 punch in the gut. I don't know. We already got that when we look at the news every day and and, and with the latest in, in the presidential race. So, <laughs> I, you know, to have something that that gives us hope a little bit in in, in 2016 is is what spoke to me. I completely agree, particularly your assessment on that final point because I think you're right. For a lot of people, the celebrity death, the election, it was a very heavy year. So if you go watch Escape is Fair like La La Land, that's exactly what people are in the mood for. And I don't know if you're as I don't know about annoyed, but troubled by some of the backlash now, because this is what happens. And this isn't Damien Chazelle's fault or Ryan Gosling or Emma Stone's fault. People say, all right, there's been this buzz building since TIFF, and everyone keeps talking about La La Land. It finally comes in theaters in December, and people go, oh, I liked it, but I wouldn't give it Best Picture. How the hell is that going to win Best Picture? I mean, I've seen way better movies than that. If, if that's Best Picture, then this is a bad year for movies. And it's not the fault of the filmmakers that it's been built up by critics and everybody else. People, I wish you could just watch the film in a vacuum and see if you liked it or not. And then the other part of is this people are saying to someone like yourself who you said living in los angeles they go oh, what, a, what a surprise hollywood again being self-congratulatory well why can't we just respect the craftsmanship there and yeah if it's a love letter to hollywood that certainly is the case but why is it such a bad thing if the film is is a wonderful film yeah you know and then when we were kids you would see oscar coverage and maybe you'd catch the globes but other than that you know film journalism didn't have the as wide a reach with social media and the hollywood reporter and people like yourself you know covering covering it across multiple mediums and platforms so i think the oscars and the race for best picture sometimes suffer just by sheer fact there's so much more coverage on the sag awards the baftas you want to stream the critics choice nomination ceremony <laughs> and do it on your phone like so it's just so much and so for guys like you and me who are in it every day or the or the you know hardcore cinephile or fan you know film fan they're they're reading the trades and there's just so much coverage now that it can be you know challenging to talk about the same piece for for as you said, from Toronto to to the Oscars, that's five months of praising La La Land, you know. So that can be a little little much. Um, but but that said, you're right. You know, it's it's a film that is a love letter to Hollywood. I think people do enjoy content and stories told within Hollywood, whether it's a, a light show like Entourage or, or or something more sinister or or you know like the King of Comedy in, in a way, you know, um, to keep a Scorsese for you. So oh I, I I think. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think whatever film gets it, you know, it, there's always going to be some type of uh, some type of backlash coming from from some group nowadays. We're talking with Ben Lyons. You can follow him on Twitter. I am Ben Lyons. Chris Beecham of GoldDerby.com. Talk me off the ledge because I, you know, Silence got ignored. The PGA and then Marty got ignored by the DGA. And I said this is turning into a catastrophe. Silence grossed 1.3 million on 747 screens, which is just a dismal showing. And you know this, Ben. You don't put 50 million if you're Paramount into this unless you're going to get critical praise and award nominations. And it's got 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. But now you're getting this backlash. People going, ah, these Scorsese-loving critics, they just love whatever Marty makes. And the film's too long. It's too boring. It's too repetitive. And guys like Verker are just all over it They just because they're obsessed with Marty. I still think, because you know the Academy loves Thelma Schoonmaker. I think she gets nominated for editing. I think Dante Freddy for production design. I love Rodrigo Prieto cinematography. And I still think Marty gets nominated for director. But I'm curious, a guy like you who, like you said, praised La La Land because it's so light and frilly and buoyant, what did you think about a film that is so heavy like Silence? You know, I didn't leave my family stranded in the streets of New York on Christmas Eve to go and see this film. Uh, I wouldn't do that to them. So the holidays, the holidays kind of and all the end of the year stuff caught up with me. So I actually ended up seeing it in the theaters in the new year. And I think that's what's happened to a lot of the voting bodies in the early awards. I mean, it wasn't even presented to us for the critics choice. I don't even remember seeing yeah. it, having an option to see it, to vote for a critics choice, um, yeah. you know, let alone um, now, now here we are in January and, and it is starting to pick up a little buzz. So there could be some strategy from Paramount to say, Hey, let's, let's, you know, let's wait till we see the whites of their highs, right? Like let's yeah. wait a little bit. So there isn't this backlash that we deal with. They allocated a lot of their, uh, resources, obviously, to Fences, which was a huge movie for them, and getting Denzel and Viola a lot of attention. So I, I think you might be right, um, but at the same time, it's a tough sell. I mean, it definitely goes in the box set uh, along with, you know, There Will Be Blood and United 93 of, of films I love and respect but probably never want to see again. I mean, it's a tough, tough two, you know, 240. Hey, what are you guys doing tonight? You guys want to come over and... Uh... 
want to watch a little religious persecution? What do you say? What are you guys doing? Maybe watch the watch the Nick game on TiVo afterwards. Like, I mean, what? Well, both could be so, horrifying experiences. It could be noted by the yeah, way. Yeah, both both will make make you question a higher power for sure. Um, but but yeah, I hope I hope a lot of those technical people that you mentioned, you know, do get the the the, the respect and nominations. You know, we've seen recently a lot of big budget movies like um you know mad max you remember last year kind of yes. swept up a lot of the techna you know wins at the oscars so they're they're, they're, they're kind of leaning it seems like towards big special effects driven movies and and this has that but not but not really i mean it's, it's it's more classic filmmaking at the highest level and and i appreciate how much you've championed the film and and i hope people give it a chance oh, i appreciate that man chris beecham did say to me from gold derby look no further than a film like american sniper was getting no consideration for any of the awards also had a late release date paramount's obviously given the screeners a silence to everybody and then all of a sudden guess what bradley cooper was up for best actor clint was up for best director it was up for best picture so maybe there is still hope for silence uh, to follow that lead from a few years ago the film like american sniper how about Hell or High Water? I, I was worried that it was going to get lost, Ben, one of these late summer releases, you know, terrific Texas crime film. Bridges, I knew, would get nominated for Supporting Actor. But I feel like now that movie's going to get a push to at least get nominated for Best Picture and Best Screenplay. And I hope so, because I thought it was a really gritty, well-done piece of work. How about yourself? I, I, think you, I think you're right in the screenplay category. I'm not sure with Best Picture, because who knows what goes on with Best Picture now? Is it 10? Is it 6? Maybe it's 8? depending on how many vote for, you know, it's kind of a, a, a crapshoot now with, with Best Picture. I don't think you're going to have anything this year in the animated, you know, race for Best Picture like you saw Up a few years ago or Toy Story 3. I don't think you see any of that. Um, I, I like that film a lot, and, and, and Jeff Bridges has really kind of, you know, um, cemented himself now at this stage in his career where every time he comes out in one of these movies, um, it, it's going to get awards attention, you know. Um, coming off of Crazy Hard and, and, and some of the things in recent years. So, and, and, you know, Chris Pine tries, man. You know, he really does. You know, for every, for every Jack Ryan misstep, you know, he really, I feel like, you know, is searching for better roles or is at that stage in his career where he's like, you know what, I got paid from Trek. I've gotten paid from some of these blockbusters. Let me try to reinvent myself a little bit and be an actor's actor. I remember he did Farragut North on, on stage out here in L.A. at the same time Star Trek came out to kind of balance that. So look for him like a Jake Gyllenhaal or a Ryan Reynolds maybe at that stage in his career, maybe Ryan stage a couple of years ago, trying to take on these weightier pieces. And I really like this. Is a, this is a movie like my, my late grandfather on my mother's side. It was a retired cop and a soccer player in Chicago. Like, he would have liked this. This is like a, a man's man's movie. You know, a tough, tough whodunit. And just, yeah, I, I really like the film. And like you said, there's something about coming out early in the summer to be counter-programming to all the robots and superheroes that, maybe, you know, can bring your film some attention. Last one for you, Ben. Manchester by the Sea, remarkable story about grief. I think it's a cinch to win for screenplay for Kenneth Lonergan. Owen Gleiberman said to us that it's got an outside chance of knocking off La La Land for best picture. He said, listen, La La Land's a heavy favorite, but there's an undercurrent of buzz right now for Manchester by the Sea. What do you think? I, I think he's right. I remember at Sundance, you know, the, the press screening, you had to get there two hours early to see it. It was already buzzed about and Amazon made a big push for it, which w was interesting in terms of just the distribution and the business of the movie. But as for the film itself, you know, it's, it, it's such a depressing watch that I think once you actually give it a second viewing, if you do have that time in your life, you start to see little nuances in it and some humor um, that, that, that really rounds out the film. And I struggle though, Adnan, and it's something that's come up a lot this award season with you know, when you're judging the art and, and sort of looking at, at the films and, and not judging the people who make them, you know, Casey Affleck's been in the news, obviously, for some sexual assault cases that he settled out of court. And you saw Nate Parker deal with it with a, an incident that happened to him 20 years ago. Yeah, by the um, way, Birth of a Nation completely forgotten, right? We thought that'd be a contender. No one's even mentioning it now. Yeah, and, and another one that came out of Sundance last year so strong and so with so much attention. And then, you know, you look at Mel Gibson, obviously, as well-documented things he said over the years, and he's getting love for Hacksaw Ridge. So it's an interesting kind of question that's being raised out here is how much do you, are these people campaigning themselves and their careers and their lives and who they are, or should the work speak for itself? You know, I thought Casey was better than the movie. I wasn't a huge Manchester fan. If somebody were to upset La La Land, I'd like it to go to Moonlight. Mm -hmm. I think that film is, is such a, 
God, it's it's such an important movie to see right now for so many reasons. But I just love the the raw authenticity of it. Um, I remember, had the same kind of feeling when I saw Beast of the Southern Wild. When you see something that's just so raw and pure, and and there's something to be said about watching relatively unknown actors. I mean, Herschel Ali and and, and Naomi Harris are, are are known, but they're not huge stars. The rest of the cast, unknowns, you can really lose yourself in the performances. So I hope. I hope people, you know, if they're going to vote for something besides La La Land, give it to Moonlight instead of Manchester. I am so proud of you, Ben. I knew you were going to be great, but you are the first ever guest who has made a Beast of the Southern Wild reference. Congrats to you. That, I mean, if you can tell me the director, well, I was already going to send you a cinephile shirt. If you can tell me who directed that and got nominated for Best Director, I'll send you five shirts. Oh, he's a young dude. I yes. remember Ben something. Yeah, right? Ben. Come on. Give me the yes. second. Oh, come on. Ben, not Ben Younger. He did Boiler Room. Ben oh, Zeitlein. Ben Zeitlein. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I remember Quivenjane Wallace. I mean, there you go. Right. This is as movie geek as it gets when you're talking <laughs> director of Ben Zeitlein of Beast of the Southern Wild. You're a good man, Ben Lines. Hopefully we meet one of these days. You can follow Ben on Twitter. I am Ben Lines. I know you're pushing hard to have me involved with Oscars.com, so I appreciate that on a personal note. And thank you so much for coming on on Cinephile. You are, as I said earlier in the potty, a better version of me, someone who loves movies and sports, and I appreciate the passion. Adnan, get your penguin suit ready. We're going to get you out to stand in front of Hooters on Hollywood Boulevard at the Oscars sometime soon, all right? That's what you're doing. You're standing outside of Hooters on Hollywood Boulevard. It's so classy. Listen, don't forget to tape the waitresses. I'm very generous when it comes <laughs> in that regard. No, thanks. thanks so much, man, for having me on. And, and I love the pot. You did a great job with Wahlberg the other day. And that's a movie people should see, too, Patriot's Day. I'm such a fan of it. It's uh, it, Especially, you know, with the sports tie-in and real-life history, that's one that's getting forgotten. So I want to give that movie some love as well. well well said. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it, man. Take care. A Scorsese story. I, I should have teased this earlier because I don't know how much of the audience actually gets through the entire podcast. It's neither here nor there because all we care about is if when you download and start listening. So you can listen to 10 seconds of the entire thing. But I do appreciate those who hang in for the entire podcast. Marty and Tom Hanks. Almost could have been. I'm reading I Heard You Paint Houses, which is uh, a story about Frank the Irishman Sheeran, who is Jimmy Hoffa's right-hand man. Now, they've already sold the foreign rights of this. I mean, while silence has been such a colossal bomb, unfortunately, you hear Martin Scorsese gangster movie, all of a sudden distributors go, me, 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 me. So they've already sold the foreign rights that they did at Cannes Film Festival. They haven't even started production yet, but the word is, because when I saw Pacino last year, the, one of the first questions I would have asked it, but somebody goes, hey, what's happening with The Irishman? The Irishman is the nickname of Sheeran, which is uh, what the film adaptation of I Heard You Paint House is going to be. And Pacino goes, yeah, I'm going to work with Marty for the first time, and Bob and I are talking about it. This, this is what it is. Marty directing a story about Frank the Irishman Sheeran, a gangster and right-hand man of Jimmy Hoffa. De Niro would play Sheeran, and Pacino would play Jimmy Hoffa. Harvey Keitel close to being in the cast. They've been trying to lure Pesci into the movie, and apparently he's been in semi-retirement. He's like, no, I'm good. They're like, dude, we got De Niro, Pacino, Keitel, Marty. Joe, just come in for a day of work. Are you kidding? Who the hell's not going to want to watch this movie? And Pesci's like, nah, I think I'm good. But I can't remember the exact number, but they've sold the foreign rights to this thing for an exorbitant amount of money. So the, the, the word is they're going to go into pre-production, I think early this year, once Marty was done with silence. So like March or April, and then hopefully start shooting it next year. Because even when De Niro was here visiting, I didn't ask him, but somebody else mentioned, hey, the Irishman, he goes, yeah, yeah, Marty, Pacino, yeah, we're, we're working on it. So hopefully it happens. While reading the book, I was reminded of the fact that at one point, Tom Hanks and Martin Scorsese almost collaborated on a film because Marty, along with being very interested in Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters, loves the Rat Pack. He loves Sinatra, he loves Dean Martin, all those guys. So they were going to make a movie called Dino, which was based, you know, a biography on Dean Martin. And Hanks was going to play Dean Martin. And get ready for this. Travolta as Sinatra and playing the role of Jerry Lewis was going to be Jim Carrey. And I hadn't read about this in years, probably since it was discussed, which was the mid-90s. It was after Casino. And I was like, oh, yeah, I thought I dreamt that. But I remember reading Jim Carrey, Jerry Lewis. Like, how crazy would that have been? Um, so Hanks met with Scorsese a handful of times. They got along great. Hanks was like, obviously, I love Main Streets and Taxi Driver and Ranging Well. And Marty was like, oh, I think Tom's a great actor. And this was, he had said just after he'd started to make those serious films. But Marty said, I always knew he had that capability. But now, post uh, Philadelphia and Forrest Gump, he really was being a guy who was buzzed about. So they were like, all right. And, and Tom was like, all right, yeah, gangster movie with Marty and that era. And yeah, let's do it. But eventually what happened was Marty said they couldn't get the script in good shape. He and Nick Pelleggi were working on it. Pelleggi is the guy who co-wrote Goodfellas and Casino. 
because he said this was the fundamental problem. He couldn't make a movie about the Rat Pack and Dean Martin without being critical, and he himself did not want to be critical. Like, here is the exact example of director as artist. Marty goes, people are going to want me to put in all the mob influence and Sinatra beating up people and how they're cheating on their wives and being jerks to everybody. He goes, and that's not how I look at those guys or how I would want to portray them. And unless I portray them in an honest and authentic manner, then there's really no point in making the movie. He said, when I think of the Rat Pack, I think of all the beautiful music that's impacted me and how proud we were as Italian-Americans to have these guys out there. And he goes, that's really what stood out to me. He goes, if I made Dino, it would have to be some scenes of, you know, Sinatra beating some guy up. and We got mob influence and all. He goes, it would have to be rather sordid to tell the true story. And I personally did not want to make that film about those guys and perhaps tarnish or taint their reputations. How cool would that have been, though? Hanks and Marty together? Jim Carrey? Travolta? Sinatra? I don't know if you're Travolta guy. I think he'd be a great Sinatra, though, because he could sing. At the very least, you knew that Travolta could sing. Rick Pasper's been sitting in the entire time. Rick, you get one minute to talk about a film that you have made, and it's available. Get, Dan's going to get your mic set up. Go ahead. The stage is yours. One minute. Well, that's all I need because the movie only runs 63. Uh, so two years ago, production company I work for outside of ESPN on my own time, make no money with them. Uh, called Elmwood Productions. We do puppetry work here in Connecticut, and we made a horror film called Head. It's a satirical kind of throwback to 70s and 80s B-movies and uh, won a bunch of awards in some film festivals. We were actually just down at uh, Fear NYC back in October for their inaugural, and uh, it's available on iBleedIndy.com right now for streaming and download. Also available uh, elmwood.vhx.tv and elmwoodproductions.com. So if you like uh, campy horror movies with puppets and blood and gore and all the fun stuff that comes in with that, go check it out. You know, it's definitely not cinephile material, but uh, maybe someone in the audience will enjoy it. And as I said to you, you've got to get it to Midnight Madness. The Toronto Film Festival has a, a selection, and I'm sure you've looked into this, but the Midnight Madness, it's always some crazy, bizarre, outlandish stuff. Like that's where the Rocky Horror Picture Show and films of that ilk could be born. So I'm sure that puppetry and gore and mayhem – like that screams film festivals, particularly Midnight Madness at TIFF. Well, maybe not this one, but we are in the uh, works of writing a spinoff sequel. So nice. maybe when we do that one, we actually get a better budget because this one we only did for $3,000. So going to try and get a better budget, get a little more of a crew. We've got a script in the works right now. Maybe that one will get up to Midnight Madness. It'll be a little more polished than Head. <laughs> Go check it out. Thanks to Rick Passport, Dan Stanzik, and the entire team. Once again, please give us a rating on iTunes and leave a comment as we try to get in out of the triple digits and into the double digits. On the next podcast coming early February, I'll give you my recap of the Oscar nominations, which are coming out January 24th. Fingers crossed for silence. And until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.